welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Dude. Oh yeah, it's Dude here. Album Nerds Podcast time. I've got Andy and Don with me. Hello guys. Are you ready to rock? Children of the Nights? Are you ready to rock is my question. Are you ready to rock? (laughs) Whoa, Don. (laughs) That was awesome, man. I wanted to do it, man, but my 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 vocal cords won't support it at this at this time of day. <laughs> it takes a lot to get up there, man. I tell you. All right, so uh, here on the Album Nerds podcast, we're three dudes love talking about albums at album format. We spin a wheel of musical destiny at the end of each show, and then it tells us what we're going to talk about on the next one. The reason that Don made that horrible sound was <laughs> with fun hair metal. So, uh, why don't you tell us about what we're doing today, Don? Okay. Well, uh, hair metal uh, is, a, is a subgenre of metal that features pop-influenced hooks and guitar riffs, upbeat rock anthems, and slow power ballads. Um, some might refer to it as, as glam rock, and it in fact borrows, you know, from the fashion, uh, an image of, of 70s glam rock. It was, you know, most commercially successful really in the years be- like 82 to, to 92, um, but it was probably the dominant commercial uh, rock genre of, of that era. What would you call that era, Don? <laughs> <laughs> I think dude might do it better. Can you do it? <laughs> I think we should call it the decade of decadence. There it is. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Can we uh, just talk a little bit about our experience, our, uh, how we're coming into this conversation on the decade of decadence? For me personally, not a big fan of the hair metal genre originally. It feels like a kind of a commercial thing to me, I guess. I always pictured it as being more of like, Pretty mainstream and kind of shallow was my, I guess, uh, impression as an outsider. I was not, you know, of the age during the 80s to appreciate this. Did you appreciate this music as it was coming out or what's your perspective? Yeah, well, you know, this is the, you know, the era when I was coming of age. And so, I mean, you know, this hair metal was, uh, you know, it was all over the place, you know, particularly on MTV. I don't know. It, it was a time where I think things were, were more divided. Uh, and I was not really hanging out with the, the hair metal crew at, at my, <laughs> at my school. But I, you know, I still, I mean, I knew the, the songs, you know, at least the, the hits, you know, now, you know, being removed from it and maybe being able to separate the, the image from the music. Uh, I definitely have a, a greater appreciation for it. Yeah, yeah, similar for me. I mean, I came up at around the same time, middle school, high school, is when this stuff was at its peak. I wasn't really into it then. I enjoyed an occasional song. I liked Warren's Cherry Pie. You know, um, the power ballads were cool. And uh, previously, in my earlier years, I had dabbled in things like. Um, Twisted Sister, and I liked Quiet Riot, but it was mostly because it was kind of scary, and I was like a middle schooler. So um, as I've gotten older, I've I've gone back and dug into some of this stuff, and I really enjoy a lot of these bands. So I'm looking forward to an opportunity to talk about it, see what uh, you guys think, and see if you found some stuff that you enjoy as well. But this should be fun, and uh, I'm ready to rock. Yeah, so we picked out three records that we think are representative of the genre, course they all have our own tastes incorporated into them let's do it you choo choo choose me all right my record selection 
going with something that's a little bit off the beaten path of your typical hair metal. Uh, so was the best way I could get my foot in the hair metal door about <laughs> Saigon Kick. It came about in the late 80s, their debut record, uh, self-titled. And then they put out this follow-up called The Lizard in 1992. Uh, it was a bit of a success for them. It had a, a big single that we're going to play a little cut from now. This is Love Is On The Way. Ah, the power ballad. Ah, yes, important ingredients to any hair metal album, as I've learned. Yeah, that that song alone puts them in the category for me. (laughs) Yeah, the rest of the record, I think, is pretty questionable whether it would apply. But I appreciate that you guys let me pick this record, because for the most part, the record is more, I would say, of like kind of like early 90s alt-rock some pretty strong elements of a few other bands from that time period. Uh, Jane's Addiction, like the opening cut, which is entitled Cruelty, sounds like a straight up ripoff of Jane's Addiction to me, <laughs> which isn't a bad thing. I love some good Jane's Addiction, uh, especially that era. On the rest of the record, there's definitely elements of Alice in Chains, Guns N' Roses, Skid Row, I would say. And there's even a track that kind of sounds like the Beatles, which is doesn't make any sense, but uh, I, they, went, they went for it. Yeah, so the main creative force behind the band is the guitarist Jason Belair. He produced the record as well as wrote and kind of was the driving force behind this kind of happening. Yeah, what, do you, what are you guys' impressions? Had you heard, I know I think you guys had heard the single, but what did you think of the full record? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had only heard the the single, and in fact, I had forgotten about the single. Uh, but now, you know, it's it, it's been in my head all, all <laughs> no, week. Can't, yeah. <laughs> you can't get it out. Uh, you never will again. Yeah, uh, I was actually uh, I was pleasantly su- surprised by it by the album. Well, it's really all over the place, which, which I tend to like. You know, and it's it's a longer album. You know, I think it's in the fifty something minute range, but it didn't play too long for me. And I think it's just because you know e- each song is is so different uh, from the last. Um, but it but it does feel kind of like a a transitional album. You know, so you you do have those elements of of the hair metal, but. You know, then you're, I'm starting to hear more of the, the grunge sounds. Uh, a lot of the vocals kind of sound like the harmonies remind me of Alice in Chains. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think all the songs are extremely hooky and, and catchy. So it's, it's really a, you know, I, th- I think it's a, a pretty impressive album. Yeah. I, I liked it a lot too. And I was only familiar with the single and remember seeing it on MTV. Was there a good video? Uh, yeah, it was black and whitish, and you know, it, it was kind of like extreme, you know, with more than words. It was sort of in that that same pocket. And the, this band, which I'd never listened to their album before, and I did enjoy, and I did hear Alice in Chains and and all those other references that you mentioned, Andy. It was a weird transitional time for bands like these. There were, uh, you know, Ugly Kid Joe. I think falls into that category too, where they weren't quite hair metal, but everyone by that point, as we were moving toward the alternative and grunge scene, it was becoming stronger and stronger. If there was a power ballad, then somehow it was hair metal. You know, same with Skid Row and Guns N' Roses. They're both called. You know, I've seen them on lists of hair metal bands or glam bands, but. They really weren't. I mean, uh, you know, Axl Rose did have the quaffed up hair in, in one video, but for the most part, they weren't really part of that hairspray, lady makeup, cheetah print, 
you know, <laughs> stuff yeah. that you picture when you think about the the peak of the hair metal. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad I got a chance to listen to this. Uh, kind of confused, but it's a good confused because all the songs are still fun to listen to. Yeah, I kept coming back to that kind of idea of it being scattered. Um, so my three words were, were scattered, transitional, and cliche rich because... I think you're missing on you're missing out on a on a, a discovery of a cool new term, Andy. Cliche riche. Cliche riche. <laughs> yes. yes, I think that could be a thing. I, like I saw that. that. I saw that in your notes. Cliche. I'm like, ooh, cliche riche. Cliche riche. It's like upper echelon <laughs> cliche right there. <laughs> yes, the primo yes. cliche. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean, there's a lot of just like I would say '90s tropes of like rock going on on this record. It's like. The guitar sounds kind of down-tuned, which you'd hear a lot later in the decade. There's like little spoken word passages, which I think it's kind of cliche, uh, even in the 80s. Why don't we play a song that I think, man, sounds just like um, Alice in Chains here, a little bit of the second cut, as is Hostile Youth. Yes, it's got that heaviness, man. That's that's for me. That's like what's missing from a lot of these records earlier in the eighties or in the eighties. Um, just there's no low end. There's not much bass to really drive things along. So I'm sure I'll say this later on the show too. But having that just helps smooth things over so much for me. One thing this band does not have is the vocalist who can hit the the upper range. They don't even attempt that. We'll get to some of that later on the show, though. But they do attempt some things that I think maybe don't work quite as well. There's some like goofy throwaway songs. There's, one, there's like a 50 second song called My Dog, which is about someone's dog getting killed. It's kind of, I think it's meant to be funny, but it's a weird topic for something that's supposed to be funny. Yeah, that's not usually a humorous <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's also the closing cut. I think it's supposed to be a joke, but I'm not also not positive. It's called Chanel. It sounds kind of like a Beatles song. I think I'll put the vocal harmonies. Let's play a little cut from it now. So, I mean, definitely scattered, I think is a good way to describe this as a whole. I don't know. Did you guys get thrown off by just how all over the map this record was in terms of the sounds? No, I, I think that's kind of what I like about it. I mean, I, I think that song goes on a, a, a bit too long. You know, I think it would have been a nice little minute long ending to the, to the album, but no, I, you know, I like that, that everything is, is so different, you know, from the, from the last thing. Yeah. I, I think this is kind of typical, like extreme did similar things on the album with more than words. And like I mentioned, Ugly Kid Joe, those are two examples that just come right to mind where they do have goofy things. It's like being non-cliche by throwing a little bit, you know, everything in the kitchen sink included. And hey, look, we have personality. Look, we can rock. Look, we have hearts and are sensitive. <laughs> I feel yeah. like these bands that were sort of in this middle ground, I think their producers and and record labels probably were like, all right. Let's throw it all out there and see what sticks, right? And then we can figure out what you are, you know? Yeah, yeah it kind of comes out of the, the White Album tradition. Just do everything. Yeah. Everything all at once. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has that vibe to it. Seems like the single stuck, the ballad, for whatever reason, was definitely what was happening at the time. But it's a pretty interesting record. It definitely feels kind of stuck in between two eras. But that's not always a bad thing. So 
Check it out if you haven't heard it, The Lizard by Saigon Kek. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. And now it is time on the show when we ask ourselves a question. So, hair metal. Obviously, you know, it can be described by its musical attributes, but largely people are talking about the quaffed up, giant teased out hairspray hairdos that looked like Dolly Parton on meth. <laughs> so, <laughs> haircuts. Ever had a bad one? Describe your worst. Well, 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 well. Let's see. Um, I think I mentioned on a previous show that I used to have a little town in the back. <laughs> it was like yeah. seven or eight, which I think was pretty terrible. Seriously, come on. There had that. to be a worse one in your like you know teenage years when you thought you were being cool. <laughs> yeah, I had. I don't think it was cool, but I I did start a minor trend in my high school. I had like a like a wave, like a gelled up sort of wave in the front, like a side side part, and then like a big swooping like wave. a Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Uh, Conan took it to another level, man. But uh, it was like a, a little little Conan O'Brien. It was not good. It would take a lot of product to make it make it happen, and I regret all the time I put into it. <laughs> How about you, Don? Well, I used to I used to shave my head, uh, which really? yeah, which was I, I think pretty misguided. I mean, <laughs> I mean, one I, I actually I mean I have like a thick head of hair, you know. And so I was kind of wasting, I, I think, an attribute that's that's yes. that's good. As a, as a bald man, I now take offense to right. it, even though I helped you shave your head some of those yeah. times. Wow, uh, I can't even picture you, man. Yeah, and plus, I mean, I have a giant head as it is, and it's not well shaped either. So I, I just I, I was not playing to my <laughs> strengths, you know. <laughs> so it was. I, I, you know, a couple of years of my life, you know, I, I was doing that and then I came to my senses. Is this like for religious reasons or uh, what? Buddhist <laughs> monk for a while or something? I, I think it was just convenience. I, I think it started yeah. in college. I, you know, attempted to cut my own hair and I went too far. And so I ended up having to lose it all. And then I just uh, got okay. in the habit of, you know, shaving my head every, uh, every month or so. so yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. For me, you know, I, I've mentioned, you know, I had a mullet sort of thing, but college age, I'd go like in public this way. And it was, I, I blame Lane Staley, but I had like hair, you know, kind of longish hair down to my ears, but then I shaved the sides and back and then would pull it up and put it in a top knot ponytail. Wow. Like, oh yeah. I remember those are popular. Looked like a fountain coming out of my head and I would go... <laughs> places and if people gave me looks it's like yeah you're totally out of it dude you don't know you don't understand right. was it going straight up or was it going back straight up oh, straight up on the top of my head wow. that sounds like a cartoon character man like pebbles from, from <laughs> Dr. From the Seuss or something. yeah i looked like a douche so well i've i've enjoyed this <laughs> all right folks so now that we've shown ours why don't you show us yours Describe your worst haircut to us on the Discord or on the socials. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you might not be surprised uh, to, to find out that uh, I went with uh, a British artist. What? <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. Uh, so I, I chose uh, White Snake. They're self-titled, uh, not a debut. Uh, it's actually their their seventh album. I know. Yeah, it's so weird. weird. Self-titled seventh album. That has got to be 
pretty rare. Yeah. Well, anyway, so let's uh, before I get into it, let's just let's hear the song you know. Uh, here's uh, here I go again. So that's uh, Here I Go Again. That is actually a re-recording. So they originally uh, recorded the song in, in 1982 uh, on the Saints and Sinners album. I, I guess uh, Geffen, uh, they were signed to Geffen Records. I think they were really banking on this album being the the breakthrough in, in North America, which it ended up being. Uh, and of course, you know, this song was a, a big reason for it. Um, hey, Don. Yeah. Did you uh did you listen to that other version? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> Instead of like a drifter I was born to walk alone, it was like a hobo. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, I read about that and it was actually I guess originally um uh Coverdale wanted it to be drifter, uh but then he f- figured there were too many songs out there that use that drifter word. And so they went with hobo. <laughs> oh, they went back to, oh to drifter. <laughs> Oh yeah, my gosh. Uh, but you know, so this treatment of the of the the song is just a, a little more you know mainstream rock, uh, a, a little less uh, a little less blues. Uh, but anyway, uh, White Snake uh, was formed in in 1978 uh, in London. It, it's basically uh, David Coverdale's band. Uh, David Coverdale had been a lead singer for for Deep Purple for a couple albums. I mean, he's not like the uh, you know when. Deep Purple was was at its peak. Uh, that's not him. That was Ian Gillen, is it? But anyway, so after Deep Purple broke up, uh, Coverdale uh, started White Snake. Uh, also, confusingly, he he did two solo albums, and the first solo album is called White Snake. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to ask you. Oh my about. gosh! No way. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's re- it's a fun rabbit hole to go down these these things like the history of Deep Purple and, and stuff. But anyway, yeah. So they've been basically a, a blues rock band. They were having hits in in Great Britain. But they were just slowly working their way into the the North American market, uh, and this was the album that that really uh, exploded here. Um, yeah, well, what, what are your thoughts on the the White Snake album? Well, for me, like this was surprisingly palatable. It was not a quick listen, but does it bring a lot of energy? There's a lot of momentum through this record to get you through some of the slower ballads, which are a few sprinkled in. Um, but yeah, I you know I don't know if I would say I loved it, but I appreciated some things to it. Um, the vocalist, as you mentioned, fantastic. Sounds just like Robert Plant at moments, which I appreciated. The lyrics, not as much, but <laughs> I, think, uh, I think I get behind his singing for sure. The lyrics are cliche riche. <laughs> yeah. uh, sure right. <laughs> yeah. uh, dude, I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I do have it on vinyl, and, and I like listening to it a lot and i think his vocals are great i mean the guy at this point was like 35 36 years old and you can tell like in the videos he's not he's got the hair but he's not all like wearing spandex clothes and stuff he's there's still there's something very i guess british about him where he's still kind of like proper proper you know wearing wearing like a you know it's a rock and roll version but like having a jacket on and and that kind of stuff his his voice is incredible uh, he did do a, a Coverdale Page project with Jimmy Page in 1993, but this guy is an established, excellent singer, and it's great to see him showcased in this way. And the production and the the way they changed the sound to match the 80s, the the glam metal, hair metal period was brilliant. I mean, from what I read, this was he was planning to be done if this didn't work. And he's still touring. White Snake is still touring. He's seventy-one years, seventy or seventy-one years old, and still doing it. So, 
The the three words I, I used to describe the album were mature polished metal. I guess that's how I wanted to, to say it. Although maybe for the P, I, uh, palatable. I like uh, Andy's word there because uh, it is uh, palatable. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, you know, when I compare it to uh, other albums from, from the era, you know, I guess like you guys said, the, the best part about it is is his voice. I think if I were to form a super group of this era uh, and of this genre, I think Coverdale would, would be my, my vocalist. I mean, a part of it is because, you know, he's probably in his mid to late thirties, um, and all these other guys are, are babies, but he just sounds like a man compared to Vince Neil and John Bon Jovi and, and all those guys. You know, he can do sort of a, a deeper sound and then he, he can still do the scream if you want. And if you want to hear the scream, why don't we do that, uh, crying in the rain? to make me cry yeah That's- yeah don wasn't that song also from the 1982 album yes no kidding yeah so they, they redid those two why don't we do the uh another song um still of the night this goes back to the deep purple days so it came from a, a demo that coverdale had done with richie blackmore Probably my favorite song on the album. Oh, yeah. 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 Me too. There's some low end on that one for you, Andy. There's and a little, a, bit, a, a yeah. little bit of thrash. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, uh, thing I should point out. Uh, the, the other key member of the band at this time was was guitarist John Sykes, uh, who had actually, I, I think, sat in and uh, been with Thin Lizzy uh, in the early 80s. They actually fell out during the, the recording of this, this album. And I think Coverdale basically sacked the whole band. Um, so when you, when you watch these videos, the, you know, all the, all the musicians, those are not the ones that are, that are on the album. Uh, and then the, the musicians that went on tour for this album are, are not the ones, uh, you, you hear in the recording. Now, I, I read that Bob Rock, although not the producer of this album, was friends with David Coverdale and helped with some of the arrangements and stuff, because I can hear that that big Bob Rock sound. Yeah, I think uh, somebody credited Bob Rock in, in helping Sykes find the, the guitar sound for, for this album. Yeah. Good. Uh, and then, you know, I think what people probably remember from White Snake of this era, era is the, the videos. They're iconic. Um, you know, for one main reason, uh, you know, Tawny Katane, who is an American actress and model, I guess, you know, she's, you know, dancing on a Jaguar and, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the car. Not the animal. Oh, right. That's. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Although if she was riding an uh, actual Jaguar, that would have been equally impressive doing those those uh, somersaults yep. and back bends and whatever. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't she married to David Coverdale? Yeah, yeah, they were together for a, a couple of years. Yeah, and she ended up on one of those reality shows, like The Surreal Life or one of those. Jeez. Mm, well, anyway, so that's uh, White Snake with their self titled seventh album, White Snake. And now a word from our sponsor. Us. This is friendship. Pure, unadulterated friendship. Oh, yeah. Hey, all you glam rockers out there. Want to uh, congregate with people who appreciate the follicle lifestyle as much as you do? <laughs> Check out the Aldnerds Discord, aldnerds.com slash Discord. Yeah, we post kind of what we're up to, what we're listening to. And what are you guys listening to, you metal maniacs? Let us know. That's what we're there for. I mean, we can put all the 
stuff we want up there and that's great but we want to know what you're listening to what do you recommend for other album nerds and for us word up so head on over to the album nerds discord albumnerds.com slash discord guaranteed good time check it out all right, so I'm coming in with the granddaddy of them all in some ways. We're talking Motley Crue. We're going to go with their second album from 1983. So this is Shout at the Devil. Let's listen to it. All right, so that was Motley Crue, the bastions of clean living in the 1980s with the... Uh, title track from shout at the devil you know I, I i considered a lot of albums for this and i wanted to get to one of the the old school ones i thought about quiet riot i thought about twisted sister and i was listening to twisted sister come out and play and i was really close on that one because it's got similar themes to this lots of hell and devils and monsters <laughs> yeah but the energy on this is a little nastier a little ruder which is kind of what that whole sunset strip club scene was and these guys were hedonists still are probably (laughs) um and they kind of you know this they had this sort of evil satanic-y look and then they moved on to the glamier lady makeup type of thing and then the leather thing and the, the whole strip club girls 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 but they were around through this entire era with hit albums and hit songs the other bands kind of came and went, but these dudes were always there. So what are your guys' experience with the crew? Your thoughts on on this and their place in the whole hair metal universe? Um, for me, I kept coming back to Kiss with us, man. It sounded so similar to some of those Kiss records we listened to in the late 70s. Is there any connection between the groups? I mean, even the album cover looks kind of like a Kiss album cover to me. Um, the connection is that they, they on a, one of their early tours, they were opening for Kiss and Gene Simmons kicked them off the tour because they were acting like assholes. Uh, that sounds about right. And these guys were exactly what Gene Simmons hates. So <laughs> that's the connection. I think they were even too crazy for the Ozzy Osbourne tour uh, at the yeah. time. <laughs> wow. And that's, that's saying something. Yeah. Well, that's part of what their record label geniusly used. They'd get them in different magazines talking about the outrageous stuff they did because it was driving young men in particular, teenage dudes, to want to listen to these guys that are living this crazy metal party lifestyle. And they used it as part of the marketing tactic. Now, it was all true. I mean, these guys got you know, had drunk driving accidents, involuntary manslaughter stuff, court cases, overdoses, destroyed hotel rooms. I mean, the whole thing, the, all those those uh, cliches, the <laughs> cliche riche was all true for them. They were doing this stuff, which is pretty disgusting, but it was at the time kind of just accepted of <laughs> those rock and rollers. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting back to the music a little bit, yeah. I don't know. I didn't, I think Vince Neil's voice, like he shows it off quite a bit on this record and you know, it hits those high notes. I, you know, it's probably not my preference that style, but, uh, it's a thing. It's pretty prominent. It helps to kind of offset the very basic guitar riffs. I think the record keeps going back to, uh, so that, that part was kind of hard for me to get through. I like um, the riffs. Yeah. I feel like they're just, there's like, couple on each song and they're just repeated ad nauseum and they're like the most basic i feel like this would be a good record if you were learning how to play guitar like you probably could play this whole record pretty quickly i don't think that's unusual for the time though either the the song structure for 
these pop metal songs were usually kind of, you know, like that. But um, I hear some Sabbath in it as well, you know. Yeah, there's some doominess in there. Yeah. And, you know, with the sort of the satanic imagery. And that's, you know, I, I would not have been allowed to listen to this uh, in 1983. <laughs> yeah. I, my friend's big brother had it. And I remember looking at the pentagram and the picture on the, the cover down. To me, I thought about Kiss when I saw it, but they were like, they looked evil. And they, they you know, the whole album does have little, there's some little instrumentals and opening, you know, kind of interlude tracks and things that are supposed to sell you on this whole evil devil worship thing that they were just using to get people to buy it and to pay attention to it and talk about it. So they weren't really involved at all in no. cults or anything like that. One of the biggest sins at the time uh, from some folks was their use of a Beatles song, a Beatles cover called Helter Skelter which had also been associated with Charles Manson, who said that he that song is what made him want to kill people. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, Motley Crue's Helter Skelter. Yeah, that was the high point of the record for me, by far. <laughs> who to thunk, right? I mean, at the time, it was quite the thing. Like, what... And I remember kids being like, yeah, the, you know, it was this, this badass version of it. These dudes that lived across the street from us in about 83 were blasting this while they were working on their car one night. And it was, it was summer night. My dad was, <laughs> it was pissing him off. So he got the speakers from our stereo, put them in front of the screen door, and then started blasting the Beatles helter skelter across the street wow. at them. <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. One thing that struck me listening back to the Beatles version was that version has like a way more grungy sound to it than like the Motley Crue version is so clean yeah, in comparison. That's true. Though I think there's more aggression to the Motley Crue version. So yeah, I, I enjoy the, this this album a lot. It's it's extremely hooky and and catchy. Um, and I, I wasn't aware that that Nikki Six seems to be the the main songwriting force uh, in the band. Um, and I think it often is the the bass player that you know is good at at pop. You know, finding the the right chord progressions. You know, in this album, it's you know, despite it having its you know satanic imagery and stuff like that, it's really not that dark when you put it up uh, against like Metallica or really something, not. you know? No. no, no, it's not. And they are no Metallica. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the darkness is all, as you said, from imagery. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the album doesn't have some things to offer. I mean, it kicks off within the beginning, that nice little intro track interlude into Shot at the Devil, Looks to Kill is a great track. Bastard is kind of badass. Uh, it gets into some dark stuff. Uh, God Bless the Children of the Beast, that cool instrumental that goes into Helter Skelter. And then, you know, too, too Young to Fall in Love is pretty cool as well. One that I really enjoyed was Danger. It's about how dangerous these guys are. Watch out on the streets of LA. So let's check out Danger. I thought that was a really good closer. Yeah, all in all, 35 minutes of of just solid rock music. Yes, there's a there's a loose, evil, satanic undercurrent, and they really tried to play it up with the pentagrams. But ultimately, it's just a fun rock record to listen to. But these guys, I picked them because they are kind of one of the pillars, like it or not, of this era of, of rock and roll music. So uh, that was Molly Crew with Shout at the Devil. My fellow hair metal heads, what did we learn today? <laughs> 
Well, uh, I think for me, I think uh, one thing that's important while considering the genre is like what the crew was about. It's the lifestyle. It's it's the picture that you're putting to the public is an important part of the message as well as, as the music. So I think uh, considering that is important. I don't think the music really could stand on its own necessarily, but I think as a whole, you know, it does say something about where our culture was at at the time. So that's, 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 that's some value to me. Yeah. As I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, you know, I, I, it's not just true of this genre, but a, a lot of the genres we talk about, you know, sometimes you kind of have to, you know, separate the, the, you know, the image from the the music. But, but as I get older, I, I think I start to appreciate the imagery more. I, I feel like there's an art like to being a rock star and there's an art to the, the image you're, you're, you're portraying. And I, I think w- when we got into nineties and, and grunge, I, I kind of missed the, like the pageantry of it in, in the imagery. You know, I, I think rock became kind of boring. It paved the way for, you know, Nickelback and, and Creed, you know, which just had, <laughs> you know, no color at, at all. So, you know, I, yeah. I, I guess I appreciate the, the, the gaudiness of, of this era. I kind of was on the outskirts of this as a kid. And then after the grunge thing kind of fizzled out, I started leaning more toward metal just because I wanted some hard rock and then streaming services and allowed me to really dig into a lot of these bands that I'd only heard bits and pieces of or parts of albums. And the, there are such big differences between even like Poison and Motley Crue, you'd put them side by side and be like dudes with big hair and makeup, same thing, but they're very different musically and they're and white snake, very different musically yep. and Saigon kick and any other number of bands. They, there was more to it. MTV started making everything visual for music. So you could categorize it based on how people looked and how they were dressed rather than how the music sounded like Europe, final countdown, not metal, considered hair metal, right? <laughs> so that's what I really thought about a lot during this exercise. I enjoyed everything I listened to. I had a lot of fun with it and uh, I'm glad we did it. So me too. Yeah. Now, that's an interesting point, man. I mean, it really was more, I guess, usually you would categorize music by the sound. And this was more about the, the visual. And then probably MTV did have a lot to do with that because they were really coming to prominence. Yeah, it didn't matter if you were a blues rock band. If you did the hair and then had some lipstick on, you were hair metal, right? And you maybe got played on MTV. And that's when to grow up. All right, boys and girls, everyone's favorite part of the show. We're going to get that old wheel out and give her a spin. Now, if you remember, if you joined us on last episode, previously on <laughs> Musical Wheel of Destiny, uh, the dude had reconstructed the wheel into a digital form. Uh, if I remember correctly, it took up quite a bit of space. It was like a 1970s computer last time. Have we upgraded it at all since then? Yeah, it's uh, still a giant server farm the size of a Walmart, but uh, <laughs> we're continuing to hone that technology so that it can power this amazing tool that we spin and it picks a category for us. I mean, you can't just do that like on some iPad or something. This is like... Big stuff. No. This takes a lot of computing yeah. power. Yeah, a lot of compute power. We need a lot of energy. So let's we'll dim the lights across the United States and switch on the wheel of musical destiny. Let's do it. I'm your density. I mean your destiny. I have chosen the Lilith Fair Music Festival. Oh, I mean, I mean, yes. 
<laughs> so it sounds uh, the the wheel has spoken, wow. like actually spoken, and she told us that we're going to have to look at some albums from artists that performed at a Lilith Fair. So I guess it, it went on many years. So any of those artists were good to go. I think that that's quite the difference between that and the misogynistic know, right? metal that we <laughs> So I think that's good. We'll, we'll cleanse our palates a little bit. A little girl power, maybe a little respect for uh, from the other perspective of that leer, mm-hmm. that leery, gross cheesiness, I'm sure, that uh, most of those fellas <laughs> in those bands were, were exuding. All right. Good. Sounds good. Good, good palate cleanser for sure. Okay, what's your favorite hair metal album? Uh, what else are you listening to? Do you remember Lilith Fair? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right, so thanks for listening to this episode of the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll catch you next time with some Lilith Fair albums. Word up, see you then. What comes around goes around. That's a <laughs> rap <laughs> lyric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs>